0: So imagine stepping out of your day-to-day life and just dropping yourself into a gorgeous 130-acre natural playground for three and a half days of learning and laughing and moving your body and calming your brain and reconnecting with people who just see the world the way that you do and accept you completely as you are. So that's what we've created with our Camp Good Life Project or Camp GLP experience. We've actually brought together a lineup of Really inspiring teachers from art to entrepreneurship, from writing to meditation, pretty much everything in between. It's this beautiful way to fill your noggin with ideas, to live and work better, and a really rare opportunity to create the type of friendships and stories you pretty much thought you'd left behind decades ago. It's all happening at the end of August, just about 90 minutes from New York City. And we're well on our way to selling out spots at this point. So be sure to grab your spot as soon as you can. If it's interesting to you, you can learn more at goodlifeproject.com slash camp, or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes now.
1: I look at people who I admire, and they're frequently people who do tons of stuff. Mm. Like the writer George Plimpton, like he was a boxer, and then he like flew a plane for a while, and you know, all these different things that these different people do. To me, that makes a pretty interesting life.
0: Growing up in Iowa, today's guest, Mary Fonz, pretty much always wanted to be a writer, and she started to pursue that in a pretty aggressive way. Until a pretty major medical incident hit, which led to surgery and changed the future of her life. And as she tried to stitch together what that would look like, she literally turned to her mom, who had become sort of legendary in the world of quilting in the U.S., in fact, wrote what was considered the Bible of quilting. This world, in case you didn't know, and I didn't know until I had this conversation, is huge. There are some 21 million devoted quilters in the U.S. alone, and from a revenue standpoint, it is a $4 billion industry. Her mom, Marianne Fons, had become one of the leaders since the late 70s in this space, and her exposure to that sort of planted the seed for her to literally think of the metaphor of stitching to stitch together her life after this major surgery, major medical incident, and at the same time, start to adopt or start to practice a lot more this art this craft this career and profession of quilting and she built a very substantial name and eventually we ended up working and today works side by side with her mom but under the surface something else was brewing and has been brewing for a long time and that is that jones to write that has never left her in today's conversation we go deep into this entire dynamic into her journey into what it's like to actually have a deep passion, and then move through a traumatic incident that shifts direction, have opportunity, but then also have to prove yourself under the shadow, the umbrella of a very well-known parent in the space, and then feel that calling again, that this is not quite it. And we learn also where her path is taking her from this point forward. Also, you will absolutely want to listen to the end, because at the end, Mary actually shares About a seven-minute spoken word piece that's really powerful, and I think it's going to be moving for you as it was for me. As always, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project.
1: Yeah, I I stood up this morning at like four. Wow. And I'm headed back
0: tonight. Oh, you're going around to Chicago in the day. Yeah, Yeah. But that's not so bad because Chicago, it's a, actually like a relatively human flight.
1: It is. <laughs> exactly. And I'm I'm A list on Southwest, so you know, ah. I
0: just
1: I just waltz right up there.
0: So you woke mm. up with like your floppy hat and your sunglasses exactly. like
1: you're that important. Yes. <laughs> I have been recognized in airports though. Have you really? I have. I have because the public television show is on in like ninety three percent of the market. So and it's PBS. So right everybody gets pbs so even if you don't watch quilting shows because you make quilts chances are decent that on like a saturday morning like i will be there like telling you how to make a half square triangle unit or something. It's true. So That's too funny. Does it weird you out when people recognize you? Or are you cool with it? Is it, do you love it? I don't love it. Do you it.
0: secretly chase after it? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's like, do you, more, do more, you, more. Well, okay. Hey, why don't you
1: recognize me? Exactly. You? <laughs> <laughs> you look like a cultur. Do you know who I am? <laughs> um, well, no, I don't seek it out for sure, but there was this wonderful, horrible thing that happened to me. It was, I was very early flight. It was in, you know, Tampa or something like that. And I Writing a journal like every day, books and books and books of these. And I got to my gate and I realized I needed more coffee, but I had sat down with my journal and was writing in my journal. It's like, oh dear. So I put my pen in my mouth and I closed my journal and I put my journal in my purse and I went to get coffee. And that morning I had gotten up so early. I took a shower the night before. So my hair was like dried in the shape of the pillow. So, but I thought it looked kind of good in the morning. So I was like, I'm just going to leave it. So I'm walking back from the coffee thing and people are like looking at me and I'm like, I think they kind of, I think they know who I am. Like that guy did. And like, she's definitely looking at me. I got to the mirror later. My pen had exploded. It was like black ink on my face and my hair. Oh, my God. And so so being recognized, I mean, I was like, I feel kind of of important. It was not. It was not. It's because I looked like I was certifiably insane. That and those things happen. Yeah. It's called
0: being human. So we're hanging out in New York right now. You just jumped over from Chicago. And as people can gather immediately already from our conversation and from the intro that will have been pre-recorded and uh, jumped into mm-hmm. this before this. You are a quilter. So I knew almost nothing about this world at all. And I grew up in a family where my mom was a person my whole life. Her focus was on pottery and now beading. Mm-hmm. So I've been exposed to the world of making stuff with your hands sure. for my whole life. But quilting is this one thing I had no idea really existed. And you did a recent Creative Mornings talk yeah. in Chicago, and you dropped some statistics about this world that blew my mind. So can you share a bit about how big and engaged this world really is and what it's about?
1: Well, yes. So $4 billion industry. Four billion dollars a year come in and out of that world. Those, you know, galaxies of, you know, the people who make sewing machines and people who teach classes and take classes and conventions. Quilt Con was just in Pasadena in February. The Modern Quilt Guild. I mean, there's all there's so much activity, and four billion dollars is created. You know, in this in this industry, twenty one million quilters in America, and that's dedicated quilters. And new numbers are coming out this year. I can't wait to get my hands on those stats. But there are twenty. 21 million people in this country, mostly women, which is a whole hot topic. You know, mm. men and quilting. What does it mean? But they make more than one quilt. These people, they're not dilettantes. They make quilts. They have quilting supplies. And I looked. Uh, the online dating industry, by the way, is three million or three billion dollars a year. Three billion. So we're like. So
0: quilting know, is you know, bigger what? than online dating. Yeah,
1: in huh. money, in the numbers, you know, and so. Yeah. I mean, it's it, people don't know about it unless they're in it. And I I throw out those numbers a lot because it, it legitimizes what I do. If I'm sitting next to somebody on an airplane and they ask me what I do, you know, I'm a quilter, I'm a teacher, I'm a writer. And they're like, quilting? What? right?
0: N- nice hobby.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so I feel compelled right. to tell them these numbers because it legitimizes it. And then I feel sort of like, why do I have to say that? But they don't realize it, but it's huge. Yeah. yeah. I
0: absolutely no idea. I mean, really those numbers kind of blow my mind, especially when you think that you're talking 21 million people in the US alone and people who are actually dedicated in doing this. These aren't people who kind of dabble. So, which brings up so many questions that I want to explore with you. But before we even get there, like my curiosity is what brought you to this world. So was this something that you fell into as a kid and you're like, oh, this is it? Or tell me about your
1: childhood. (laughs) (laughs) God, grew up in Iowa. My mom is a really famous quilter. So I have to take you back A little bit to quilting in America because it's actually really like germane to my story. Quilts have always been made in this country, always. Like since we got here, they've changed quite a bit, but we've always made the American quilt. But then when, you know, the 50s kind of had like the 40s and 50s, women went to work, World War II. Then the 50s came along and everything was like better living through chemistry and polyester was awesome. And so quilts were seen as really like outre and lame. Nobody wanted to make them. Then the bicentennial happened, 1976, and people all over the country, women mostly, said, um, we should – Make a quilt to commemorate this huge event in our country. That would be like the perfect iconic American thing. And there was like a back to the land movement at that time. And it wasn't really a hippie thing, but it was sort of this crunchy granola moment, you know? And so people started making quilts. And there was no quilt industry at that time none, no fabric stores, no quilt con. I mean, nothing. Well, my mother was one of those people who made a quilt at the bicentennial. And she met a woman named Liz Porter. My mom is Marianne Fons. She met Liz Porter. In a quilt class in 1979, or 19 sorry 75. I was born in 79, and they started a company, Fons and Porter, and they needed money for their families. They were single women after both got divorced. They needed to feed us kids, and so they little by little built this business that turned frankly into like an empire. The Fons and Porter brand is like the Betty Crocker of the quilt world. Hmm. I mean, it's- So you're born into quilt royalty. Yeah. It's, I say the quilt <laughs> <cool> mafia. Exactly. <laughs> but so there's that, you know, that's my background on it. Mom just sort of kept following opportunities and making opportunities to seriously raise me and my two sisters. So but, we weren't into it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I got to ask a question about yeah. that though, because when your mom started it, this was not the thing. No. yeah. You know, this is, if anything, devalued. And you've got a single mom yeah. who needs to put food on the table mm-hmm. and- she starts a company around quilting, which Mm -hmm. was a thing which back then seems like there wasn't an obvious path to actually being able to earn a living and support a family doing that. Have you had those conversations with her?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she would do teaching gigs around the country, more and more quilt guilds were forming and Uh she just took jobs. And like me, I've been a freelancer for like 11 years or so writing and then doing quilting now. And we both just like, Take whatever job is offered because we're so afraid we'll never get a job again. Mm. So she was just taking these things. And they wrote a book. That's the big thing. That's what happened. They wrote a book about quilting and it's like the Bible of quilting. It's called The Quilter's Complete Guide, half a million copies. It's out of print now. But so she just sort of followed her nose and followed the opportunities. And then they had the TV show and all this. But meanwhile, I didn't make quilts. I was not interested. Neither were my sisters. Quilting was my mother's work. It was like we were creative you know, writing, performing, art. But when I was 28, I had a catastrophic illness. I mm. was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis at a really late stage, a month after I got married. So I got married in September. In October, I was at Mayo Clinic, like uh, and basically emergency surgery. Yeah, okay,
0: For those who don't know, ulcerative colitis, I mean, can be lethal, actually. Oh. It's a really brutal condition.
1: It is really brutal. I mean, your colon's eating itself. Right. So when we talk about my childhood, it's like, Was there something, you know, was it like (sighs) internal pain or something that was eating? You know, my intestines was pretty heavy, but I don't think that that's the case. I think it was just a pathogen that developed, you know. And so within, you know, days of being admitted into Mayo, they took out my colon. They took out a whole bunch of things that used to be inside my body. And my husband was in the Army Reserves at that time. He went away for a year and a half. Everything was turned upside down. Oh, God. So
0: you're in the hospital. You have your colon and other things removed. Your husband is gone.
1: Soon to be. Yeah. Right. mm -hmm. So this life showed up, right? All these, you know, this sort of like intense life showed up. And so in all of this, which is years, and we're talking about years, but somewhere in the year of all that happening, I sort of woke up with this epiphany that when your life is torn into a million pieces, it makes sense to tear up perfectly good fabric into a million pieces and sew it back together again. It was like Eureka. Oh my God, I get it. You know, I get it. And so do do you
0: think that would have come had you not been just sort of passively exposed to your mom, like, and her work? I mean, that just sort of connect the dots type of thing.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if I would have picked up needle and thread if it wasn't for her. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, the older I get, I think maybe this is true for other people. The older I get, the cooler my mom is, you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm so, my hometown is not lame anymore. It's like right. really great. You know, like right. it's a and small town in Iowa. It's really beautiful.
0: And the hill you have to, you, know, you used to get off your bicycle to go
1: walk up. It's like actually this tiny little. Exactly. Thing. Exactly. So I'm more proud yeah. of my heritage or whatever. So right. yeah, it's totally my mom's influence. And then I followed opportunities as well because when people heard that like the Fawn's daughter was sewing and making ah. quilts, it was like, Mm-hmm-hmm. so I did more and more and, and it was hard for me to make sure in the industry I had to prove myself because it's like, oh, the right. fonts scale, sure she's yeah. making quilts, sure. So I had to like work really hard to show my own point of view and my own interests and things. Did so, you
0: feel that pressure? Did you feel like a oh, sense of like you didn't want to be under the shadow and you and like everybody was looking at you to oh, just coast in?
1: God, completely. And I think only now, like six years into doing serious work in the industry in my own ways and with my own vision Now I think people are like, yeah, she's legit. But I replaced Liz Porter, half of the Fonson Porter. I replaced her on TV. Mm. She retired and I came in as the rookie and – people hated me. Oh my God. I mean, think about, I was thinking about this on the way over here, like how to describe it. Like if Chandler had been replaced in Friends by like some other dude, like (laughs) like six years in, I mean, mutiny, like people would have freaked out. And a lot of people did because I was a beginner. I learned how to make quilts on national television, basically, which I don't recommend. So yeah, I mean, I I replaced Liz. People said, I'm going to stop watching the show. I can't stand how she makes so many faces. (laughs) I was like, I can't do anything about my face. But yeah, it's been it's been tough to, a lot of pressure to be good and to be different. Yeah. What are the conversations
0: with your mom been? Like around the idea of you're this legend in this space where I'm now drawn to devote increasing amounts of my life to.
1: <laughs> yeah. Ooh. I mean, the conversation, my mom's always been proud of me, like absolutely biggest fan. And people ask her, are you so proud of Mary? Is it your dream come true? that you're sewing with her now because it happens so much is quilters want to sew with the next generation you know and the 30 year olds hope that their daughters sew or their sons will sew it just happens because it's so rewarding making a quilt is so incredible you want to teach someone what you know and so people say you know it's just it just must be a dream come true and my mom says I never dreamed it i mean i never hoped that they would make quilts i was never pressuring them to make quilts and so the conversations between us are are pretty like It's just cool. And she respects my point of view and I respect hers. But recently I applied to the school of the art institutes writing MFA program and I got in and the reason that I did it. And that's kind of a, that's like late breaking news. I haven't said it on the blog or anything, but it's, it's going to sound kind of intense, but it's her life. Like it's my mom's life. I have, I love every minute of it. I genuinely do. And it's a really cool way to keep the lights on talking about quilting and making quilts. I mean, But it is a bit of a detour from my like authentic self. And I think if I kept doing it without returning to that first love, then I would be, I would be wasting a little bit of something that's hard to describe, you know? Mm. So I'm going to go in the fall.
0: That's, that's fantastic. Congratulations, by the way. And actually I want to go down that, that path. One of my curiosities is when you, so I can't use the word stumbled into quilting because, you know, it's like, <laughs> and you can't use the word, pre- the pre- word? predestined either. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> because it wasn't, but obviously, you know, you were part of a lineage. True. There um, you go. Where there was a, there was a path open and available and you were exposed to you know, like what this world is all about. And there, there became a moment in your life where it was almost a form of therapy that Indeed. allowed you to stitch your life back together Mm -hmm. through stitching these things back Mm -hmm. together and then you you work like crazy to prove yourself to step out from under the shadow of the legend who's your mom who's helped basically build this entire field and then you reach a point in your life where you're like people are starting to say she's legit how does it feel to now take that and say i need to make a left turn
1: i mean i have asked myself like are you crazy Because, yeah, just when I get there to the point where I'm turning down gigs to speak, because I can't, because I'm, I can't, you know, I'm already booked or something or, you know, that's good. That's a good problem to have. And now I'm leaving it. And just what you said, you know, how do you, how do you square that or why? Maybe there's some drive to prove that I could do it. And now I'm good. I don't know. I, I the thing is, you don't just quit this kind of job. I have a fabric line. I love making that. I have TV to do and things. So I don't just like I'm gone. Like here's my two weeks. I, I will not be pulling out completely. No way. And I don't want to. But what was the question? <laughs> I it, mean, it, it was really. I mean, once you worked
0: so hard yeah, yeah. to establish yourself in one space, but you know, there's a, there's another voice calling you. But h- how do you navigate away from that?
1: I think it's because when I decided to apply to grad school, I had a secret. And my secret, which was so hard to say, I mean, it was a secret. I I am very close to my aunt and I was visiting her in California. And I was like, you know, if I'm honest with myself and with you, and I burst into tears, I was like, I want to study writing. I mean, I just, poetry, and this is what I really love. I mean, and so it was so delicious and so impossible for me to think that I could take two years and study writing only and spend that kind of money on it and spend that kind of time on it I mean I don't know I just I I'm from Iowa and I think it's so sad but there is this sort of like a writing degree like (laughs) Iowa we're amazing people but there's this like you know we spend way more money on football In my hometown than the arts, this is what I'm talking about, you know, so it's sort of seemed like luxurious and maybe, you know, vanity or something that I would want to do this. It's weird, because my heroes are writers and everything. But, but it was, you know, I had to admit it, I had to admit it, no matter what was happening in the court world. It was like, yeah, but it's not exactly right. It's like the princess in the pea, you know, that uh, that was that, you know, under the mattress, she could still feel it, you know, 20 mattresses high, Mm. she could still feel that thing. And I think that was it.
0: Yeah. And it got to a point where you're just like, <laughs> passion denied. You know, you can have a deep interest in one thing, but exactly. that thing keeps coming back to you. Totally. Yeah. But I mean, I, I admire what you're doing because it's, it's not an easy decision. And, and also, I, like you made clear too, it sounds like you're not saying, okay, I'm done with quilting. Now I move to another. You're, exactly. you're saying, no, this will always be a part of my life. You know, Definitely. I've, I've built stuff around. That I still love to do it. But there's something that has been calling you that you're called more strongly to, yeah. and that needs more of your time now. I recently was uh, talking to somebody who described their sort of professional life as seasons mm. and personal life too, just life in general. And they said one of the things that really helped them get comfortable with, you know, gaining a fair level of success in one space and then really shifting. Mm. As just viewing it as I'm moving into the next season in my life. And we're supposed to have seasons and being open to that. But it's, I think it's a really nice reframe.
1: Thanks. I was reading up on you, I was doing my research. <laughs> and I love serial entrepreneur, you yeah. know, and these different things that you've done. And one of the things that's T- I mean, I, I respect that a great deal. And so I feel the same that you do that you said uh, you do about me, which is great. I look at people who I admire, and they're frequently people who do tons of stuff. Mm. Like the writer, George Plimpton, like he was a boxer, and then he like flew a plane for a while. And you know, all these different things that these different people do to me, that makes a pretty interesting life. But I'm so afraid of being seen as a flake or something. It's like, mm. oh, she did quilting for a while, and now she's writing. And now, you know, I just don't want to be seen as someone who can't make a choice. And why am I so worried about how people see me? I don't know. I wish I could take that chip out of my head, but you know, it's uh, maybe part of the reason it's changing is because I've shown I can do it. And now it's like, it's legitimate for me to say, see, I can do it. I committed to it. There's also this other thing I want to do. So I'm going to do that.
0: And this is a hard question to answer. I know, but I'm curious what like your intuition says, if you had done this, Purely privately Mm. and never stepped into the spotlight in any way, shape or form. Do you have a sense that you have potentially made this decision substantially earlier?
1: Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. Because this public face and this national teacher thing, I mean, there's pressure to keep it going and there's pressure to keep delivering and being out there even more. And it is competitive. I mean, everybody has kind of their niche in the market. But, you know, these are all quilters who are trying to make a living and design. And, you know, do you have a thread collection? I do. You know, do you have this and stuff? You know, no. How many likes do you have? How many Instagram followers do you have? So to back away from that, it's the fear is like, I didn't make it, you know, it's Mm. a defeat. So if it had all been private, if it all had been just me at my sewing machine, I think it would have been way earlier, definitely, that I would have said, now, hang on a minute. Why am I not in school studying all the things that I love the best?
0: Mm. So. Yeah. It's so interesting the way that you know so many people, when you start to get some modicum of success along with that goes mm-hmm. you know, almost equivalent modicum of exposure, which we love because it lets us turn around and then earn a living doing this exactly. thing. Like You have to be somewhat public with almost everything that you do to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But there is that double-edged sword. The more public you become, the more you have expectations yeah. set on you. And then the more yeah, you feel almost obligated to yes. play a certain role. And yeah, so it becomes this interesting... And like, you'd never complain you know like it's an amazing thing to be in that position yeah Yeah, and that's not what's happening we're not saying oh woe is me it's just it's just acknowledging this shift in sort of like the expectations and and the things that you think about when choosing Mm -hmm. to keep going Mm -hmm. or to listen to some other voice that may be calling you
1: yeah it's i mean a kind of a trap that's the negative way to put it but it is and I mean, you know, freelancing, before I started doing all this stuff, I mean, I was making it work, kind of. I mean, I was – I stopped waiting tables. That was cool. I was making a living doing writing gigs for anything, anybody. But there's the money piece, too. I mean, I don't have kids. I don't have – you know, my overhead is not that high. And I was an editor for four years of a quilt magazine. And, you know, great. Great contract. You know, I could I could just, you know, wander into – well, not Barney's, but <laughs> – Every (laughs) once in a while. parties, And so, I mean, that contract is gone and all this. But, you know, teaching and doing all these things, it's I like having money. I'm not going to say I don't because it's a strange turn in the conversation, but we were broke. My family was broke. We did not have two incomes. And my mom, when she started doing this stuff. Yeah, there was no industry. She built it. I mean, we waited on royalty checks. For school clothes, like that was the way it was. And so I was never hungry. I can't say, like, I didn't have shoes, you know, but, but it was hard. And so, I think there's a fear that like the money's going to run out. And so I do take those freelance teaching gigs and things like it's very hard for me to say no to them. So one of the traps, too, is I'm making a living. Like if I go to grad school, which I'm going to do, my financial picture has changed dramatically, dramatically. And the reason just to say, you know, why I like having money, which is probably a really bad way to put that sounds pretty bad. It seems to be like access in some way, just not to like the country club, but just, you know, if I want to take a trip for the weekend to like go write someplace, you have to have money to do that. I have many friends who are like, that's not an option. You know, it's a staycation for them or whatnot. And I think as a writer, I do, I like to look at stuff and I like to look at people and I like to go places and to me, that you got to have some lubricant in your pocket to be able to do those things. So it's also been really hard to leave because I don't know what that will look like yeah. when I go.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's such an interesting exploration. I think so many of us navigate that, not just once, but you know, the average person now is actually going to change careers in their entirety many times really? between the time they start working and the time that they, give, quote, retire, if yeah. they ever retire.
1: Do you know, like, how often?
0: The last stat I heard was eight times. No way. But I, my sense is that may actually have gone up because wow. that was a couple of years and ago. And
1: millennials are, like, in the mix, yeah, right? right.
0: They will, as a general, I hate to make, like, sweeping generalizations yeah. like that. But, you know, like, there's much more vested in actually pursuing things that have a deep sense of purpose than, mm-hmm. you know, like, other. I'm Gen X yeah. and yeah. We didn't have that sensibility for the most part. I'm an aberrant you know, <laughs> yeah. to a certain extent. But yeah, I'm really glad that this part of the conversation came out, actually, okay. because there is a certain shame, I think, that people feel around it, owning the fact that, you know what, money matters to me it's actually I'm a grown up I don't actually want to be living hand to mouth mm-hmm. at this point in my life and it's going to factor into the decisions that i make mm-hmm. and I, I don't think we have that conversation publicly because there's so much shame and so much guilt and so much discomfort around the idea of you know, what we will and won't do mm-hmm. in the name of being comfortable with mm-hmm. our livings so i think it's an important important conversation to have mm-hmm. actually it's not about you know like piling up cash in the bank. Mm. It's about what it will allow us to do and how it will allow us to feel. Exactly. Which is important. I think the further you get into life, the more important those possibilities and feeling a certain way becomes.
1: Totally. And I think it's the most private part of our lives. I mean, yeah. I would say, oh, definitely, hands down, I am more comfortable talking to my friends about my sex life than my bank account, mm. for sure. And what I do with it, you know, what I do with my bank account. I mean, it's just, uh, mm-mm. I don't really want and, – and it's nobody's business, but, you know, neither is, you know, what you do with your significant other, you know. But I would be way more likely to just, you know, break it down, on, you know, over coffee about something like that than talk about, you know, any of those other things. It is sensitive. And, yeah, I, I, I think that has been part of the fear because, yeah, because we, I don't come from – Money in, in my youth. And, and yeah, I just, I I also have heroes that are sort of fabulous, right? These fabulous women. And I want to be like them, you know, who can blame me? I just want to, you know, Madonna or, or, uh, but you know, just sort of like wacky chicks. Simon Dunan calls them wacky chicks, yeah. just sort of fabulous women who, you know, sort of take up the space they want and sort of aren't afraid to like, wear a pink scarf or something like that, you know, in a jaunty way. I love that. And so you emulate people that you like. And I think having a a living that you're not afraid of all the time or having an income that you're not afraid is going to go away all the time is a great comfort to me. Some people don't care. And, you know, Jonathan, I heard the other day that some people are motivated by money and some people are motivated by power you ever heard that, that there's like two kinds of business people, which is silly. There's never two kinds of anything, (laughs) but I was thinking about that power. I don't care. I just, I don't want to be in charge of anybody, but myself. I don't want to lead a team. It's just not my thing, but I don't want to put ramen noodles on the stove again.
0: Yeah. I mean, and when you look at you know, your childhood, mm-hmm. the life that you came up with, of course. Yeah, And I think, it not I think, but I wonder if it becomes more complicated also in the context of earning a living doing something in the arts mm-hmm. because that becomes even more fraught because totally. when you actually start to become somebody who is financially successful in a field which is sort of based on personal expression, artistic mm-hmm. expression, mm-hmm. and whether it's art, craft, making, things like that. I know in a lot of more traditional art worlds, you know, there's a big, oh, quote sell out, you know, yeah, and right. that's, I wonder, does, and I'm not meaning to ask you to blast the culture of quilting, but sure. I'm just curious, is there a tension in that world between earning a, a livable wage and pursuing your craft?
1: Well, what's really surprising and it's starting to finally come out is to make a living in the quilt world, you have to have multiple revenue streams. I mean, I think quilt books, when my mom and Liz wrote the big book, there were no quilting books. There were like 10. So they wrote this juggernaut book and it was a completely, there was no internet. So if you write a quilting book today and I have one, it's going out of print they all go out of print. There Mm. are so many books and people don't buy books as much because there are online tutorials and people don't, I mean, and fabric. So I have my own fabric line and you know, that's amazing. It's a dream come true. And I hope I can do it for the rest of my life because I love it so much. The royalty on fabric Ain't nobody getting rich on fabric. I mean, you have to be.
0: That's like books,
1: probably. (laughs) Thank you. Exactly. They're just not. I mean, there's this perception. That's another, it's very interesting. I mean, this commerce and quilting discussion is really fun, but the, the perception is that your name's out there, your face is out there. You have Instagram followers. You must be like, you know, really successful. Fabric books make you very little. So little, unless I'm missing something. I mean, there are super, super, superstars, sort of like, you know, the people who have been in the game for a long time, and they do just great. And if you invent a new ruler or you invent a technique that you copyright or something, which is hard to do because quilting is stitching, it's hard to come up with something that's completely, completely original. We're standing on the shoulders of these giants who came before us. But there's There's no money in that, really. It's a quilt world that is a very robust quilt world, but there's only so much fabric you can put out every year. Here's a statistic for you. Disney, when they license to fabric companies, Disney gets about 12% royalty on the fabric that they sell. So compare Disney to me. (laughs) You can sort of do the math and understand, and uh, yeah, and books is just very low, and 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 so, so yeah, there's a tension in there. I mean, quilters you can make a living, but part of the problem too, the blog stuff, people give away this content for free. They start that was a precedent set early. Quilters are like, do you like my quilt? Here's the pattern, free download. It's like no, so. You have to have multiple revenue streams, and you have to work very, very hard because it's so full now. the mm-hmm. industry is just it's glutted with people who are trying to do it as opposed to when it was just beginning in the eighties. It was wide open, not to say it wasn't hard, but it was a completely different world
0: right so which brings up another question for me, which is that, and I don't know the ethos is are quilts meant largely to be given or to be sold, or how does that work?
1: Mostly given, it's crazy. We spend so much money on this stuff and time, and we just give it away. Right. And we're so, quilters are so generous because we—I don't know—we just are. You make a quilt and you want to give it, yeah. um,
0: which is a gorgeous ethic. And crazy. at the same time, it also adds to that challenge of like yeah. if this is something you just want to do with everything and with your waking hours, you know, But you've also got to put food on the table. How do you make it happen? Totally. Yeah. Right. And the picture is getting clearer. For I, me. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I mean we—I mean we'd be here all day if we went into the you know women's work like is a quilt quilt. art? Hmm. Is it craft? Is it woman's work? Is it folk art? I mean, a quilter can spend hours and hours and hours and hours and lots and lots of money and have on a quilt to make a quilt with technical skill that just blows your mind. And then when you put a price tag of $2,500 on it, people are like, I don't know about that. I mean, and so because quilters, they think, you know, I should be making money on this. This is a really great quilt. You know, nothing Extraordinary, Just, you know, a nine patch, something really adorable, a star quilt, bed size, you know, I should be making money on this and social price at like $250, $250 or $300. And if you took it down to the hours that she spent on it, I mean, you're talking about cents on the dollar. So it's a very weird thing. And it's, it's unfortunate.
0: How much does also, because m- my sense is that the average person, some people will probably be able to look at a quilt that was made by hand. Mm-hmm and see the beautiful stitch work and the thoughtfulness that went into all the different elements of it. My sense is that probably a lot of other people would look at something that was kicked out by a machine mm-hmm. just on a completely automated basis and not all that easily understand the difference between the two. So I wonder if there's also you know, are you battling against that mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. Or not so much.
1: Pottery barn sells quilts, crate and barrel sells quilts. The thing is though when you have a tag on a quilt yeah. and all those quilts have tags, it's like lame. It's just not the same because when you give a quilt that you made, and by hand, by the way, means using a sewing machine. I mean, really die hard, like, I'm sorry, very old (laughs) quilters at this point are like, it's cheating if you use a machine. That's not true at all. You know, our great grandmothers would have killed, killed to have a sewing machine like the ones we have. So they're not any less authentic. But, you know, making something by hand, when you give that, it's cliche, but you're giving your time. You're giving your time. And so the difference is huge. But yeah, can someone tell the difference? I think so, because the batting, which is the middle of the quilt, a quilt is the top, the batting. The stuffing, if you will, and then the back. Mass produced quilts made in China or India, they just they're really puffy in a weird way. It's cheap. It's cheap material. So quilters, we really care about what we use, and so it's cotton batting or it's wool batting, and you can tell the difference.
0: Mm. The idea of um I kinda wanna move away from making a living also, sure. but, but I think it's a really interesting mm. conversation. It crosses so many it's this this universal thing when, when you're trying to do something where it's a beautiful form of artistic expression where you just feel like, I love doing this. But at the same time, you're trying to hang your hat on being able to earn your living doing it. It's really challenging. One of the things that my fascinations with it also is, and again, I'm the dope when it comes to this. So <laughs> forgive okay. me for, okay. if, <laughs> if I'm just like making guesses or something, I'm just really fascinated, and curious. One of my curiosities is around how communities come together and how we satisfy our need for belonging. Mm. And so is there a genuine quilting community? And is that, the, you know, do people participate in this in part because it brings you into this world and cultivates this deep sense of belonging? Or is that not really a part of it?
1: It does bring you together. You know, if you think about the iconic image of the women sewing in a sewing bee, you know, in 1890, they're sewing around a frame or they're, they're quilting around a frame because what the women would do, they would make the quilt top, all the pieces of fabric, they would stitch them together. And then to make the quilt, you know, I said there's the top, the batting and the backing. It's not a quilt until it's quilted. So you have to stitch through all those layers and those pretty designs and things to quilt the quilt. And it takes a long time. Back then, they didn't have sewing machines. So it took a really long time. So they would get together, put the quilt on a frame and quilt it all together to get it done faster. And so that, I mean, that's like, The girls night out, you know, I mean, yeah, talking about everything, sharing problems, you know, someone gets sick and you, you make a quilt to raise money. So that has always been part of this. It's not a solitary act. People Mm -hmm. think of people stitching in their homes, you know, with a hoop, you know, in a rocking chair, but really, it's a very vibrant community. Now, you know, the internet changed everything, of course, like everybody else. But now, because of that, people are sharing pictures. And, Techniques and inspiration and things that really—I mean—quilts are made for the internet. They're square, beautiful <laughs> made graphic. For Instagram,
0: it sounds like. Right? <laughs>
1: oh my God, Instagram! I mean, Pinterest and things. Is there like a huge
0: that. quilt like community on Instagram? My God, it sounds like they're probably. Would, oh my yeah. God,
1: it's it's crazy. It's, it's amazing, and people. I mean, oh, it, and it's it's they're it's great to look at quilts on on Instagram. They're absolutely beautiful. These shapes, they translate really well. But so. It used to be when you were, you know, when your sister was heading West to the gold rush, you know, and quilting has always been super trendy, like people. And so you're in Pennsylvania, you make a quilt from a lady's dry goods magazine, you get a pattern, you make this thing, and then you send a block or you send the pattern to your sister in in Colorado, well, and that took a long time, but people were doing that. Now it's instant. So you have people sharing pictures with each other faster than ever, and that makes more people share them and more. So you have a quilting community that's huge and growing all the time and also catching people who might not have realized they wanted to make one or realized that quilting was still a thing because you're linked to your friend's page and she's a quilter and and so forth. So the, I see at quilt events all the time, market, festival, all these different conventions you know, someone squealing from across the room and running to meet her friend who she's never met, except they've been trading patterns and things mm, online. Yeah. You know,
0: it's pretty cool. That is really cool. I want to touch on one other thing and then I kind of want to um, explore your writing. Sure. You mentioned that it's almost entirely for women mm-hmm. or that's who's in it and, and that men quilters is a thing.
1: <laughs> Definitely. There are many men quilters and this is, you know, there are scandals in this quilt world. I'm telling you, there are. There's like, yeah, art versus craft, feminism. You know, you talked about community. I mean, the old school quilters and the new school quilters locked horns when they started, you know, the new modern quilt guild started coming up and they're super minimalist. And the old school quilters were like, that's not a quilt. And like, well, she doesn't know how to sew. And there was this friction, which is easing, thank goodness. But the gender thing is like, it's nuts. A friend of mine recently hired women to help sew this huge ambitious project of his, fifty different quilts, and he hired women to sew them. Help him. And it was like firestorm like Because a man hires yeah, the women. Yeah. And it was this I think I say as soon as you make a quilt in the twenty first century, you're entering into a discussion about feminism and gender and art versus craft and all this stuff. So but there are many men who did quilting and many I just Taped a, one of the TV shows with a, a male quilter, and a male quilter hosts that show sometimes. So, yeah, it's out there. And I think when I use the pronoun, when I'm talking to people about quilters, I say, you know, they were making quilts and the women were making quilts, mm-hmm, talking about women. And I have to remind myself to say, and a few men, you know, mm. back when women were making quilts and the, this and the and a few men were there too. But it's, there's kind of a frustration because, like, it's ours. OK, like it's ours. Can we just have this
0: Like, stop invading? Be-
1: yes. Yes. Because, I mean, I know we have to like the exception proves the rule. I mean, I women did not have a voice in art for a really long time and quilts were the way they could do that. It was like this subversive, surreptitious sort of under the radar thing where you they were making masterpieces quietly, you know, and they were expressing themselves politically silently by putting this or such into their into their quilt. I mean, so it's like we just back off. But that's not fair. And I have a lot of quilters, you know, friends that are men. So but it's very tricky landscape. Mm. You have to be really careful. Sounds like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God.
0: So from there, let's kind of uh jump back to uh, your writing, because it sounds like that's been this thing that's been bubbling up underneath you for years and years and years since you were a kid. And now you finally you've made the choice and, and we've added you here as yeah, being a, totally. a, a soon to be uh, MFA student pursue writing. It's funny that you said, you know, you grew up in Iowa, and that's just not where like, but it, the first thing that popped into my mind is, isn't Iowa like the number one writing program in the country? Yeah, at the same it, totally. Time? Yeah. In Iowa City, the writer's there, workshop. It, it's so fun. Forever. Yeah. It's like these two different ends of the spectrum. I'm curious, why did you feel that for you, the thing to do to move, to really honor that calling was to pursue an MFA?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Well, so I write a column for quilts.com. I write a bi-monthly column that's like melding these two things. Okay, great. I'm getting paid to be a writer. My blog, it's a very popular blog. I love to write it. A lot of people read it. A lot of people love it. Great. My writing is like affecting change in the world or it's making people happy. Great. So I'm making money doing it. By all accounts, like that should be enough, but I want to be better. And part of the reason that I want to be better and I want to learn stuff and I want to read more. Somebody said, you know, getting a writing MFA is, is pointless. You either sort of have it or you don't, uh, what can they possibly teach someone? I think this person was, was not totally on base, but somebody who got rejected from a yeah, writing. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I think they're pointless. <laughs> uh, exactly. But somebody said, well, you know, you learn how to read there. You learn how to read, you learn how to really be a reader. And then from there you become a better writer. But the problem that I faced a while ago was, yes, I'm doing writing. i love to write in my journal. This is great. I'm there's part of me that's being satisfied. But for me to be challenged in my life, to truly like get myself, you know into a place where I'm really having to learn something and be like Super Mary, for me to do that and what I'm doing now in the quote cool world, I have to go deeper mm. into it. I have to go deeper into it. I have to like pitch my own show to HGTV or like I actually think a quilting reality show would be amazing. And so I've been thinking about, you know, pitching that to Amazon or something. But this is what I mean. For me to be challenged and do something new, I have to go deeper into the quilt world. That's not – no, I have to be challenged in my life. And the place where I know I will never stop being challenged is in writing. So so that's why I had to, to give it a shot. And the School of the Art Institute of Chicago – amazing, right? And they're interdisciplinary. So you can take you're writing MFA, you have a writing MFA program and degree, but you can take classes in performance and you can take, you know, weaving and mm. things like that. So this, this is perfect because I feel like my life is sort of interdisciplinary already.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, you, you've also, you know, talked about performance side. you also, that's a part of your life also. True. And Do you
1: know the, the neo-futurists?
0: I've been made aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Doing a little background uh, yeah, research. exactly. No, so exactly. exactly. uh, you know, Lindsay, who is our podcast master here, yeah, is yeah. Head, who also is in Chicago, was telling me she Had been, and I guess her dad like saw a show of yours also or something like that.
1: He loved it. I was like, so
0: tell me what this is.
1: Okay, the Neo Futurists. They're here in New York as well. I think there's a an LA group as well. The longest running show in Chicago is a show called Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind and it's produced by the neo futurists and the neo futurists are an ensemble of writer director performers you have to audition to be on the ensemble it's a very tight ensemble you're there for years the average tenure of a neo futurist is about 5 years too much light makes the baby go blind is 30 plays in 60 minutes we set a dark room timer to 60 minutes and the plays that are in the show the 30 different plays are there's numbers on a clothesline above our head the names of the plays are written on the back of the numbers the audience gets a menu, and they shout out the number of the play they want to see. And the first number we hear, we jump up and grab the number off the line, read the title of the play, and say go. We do the play. At the end of the play, we say curtain. That's the audience's cue to call it the number of the next play they want to hear. And we do that, and we try to get them all done in 60 minutes. The difference is 25 years it's been running, maybe 20 20- Seven. It changes every single week because the plays, we roll a die on Friday night, we roll a die on Sunday night. There's three shows a weekend. We add that number together, and that's the number of plays we cut from that week's menu and the number of new plays we write and rehearse for next week's show. So, the one other thing you have to know <laughs> your eyebrows are like, yeah, like it's, it's intense it's great. So, we never play characters. The aesthetic of the neo futurist is you're always yourself, you're always in the theater. You can't pretend to be someone else. You can't pretend that the audience isn't there. And so, you know, I'm not going to be mincing around like I'm Marie Antoinette or something. I'm Mary and I can do direct or dress monologues. I can engage with you. There's dance. There's, I mean, we're not dancers, but, we, you know, there's movement. There's movement pieces. There's poetry. One the reason the show is so brilliant and people love it and come back Every weekend for 27 years is because you'll see a play and it's two minutes long and it will break your heart. And then, curtain. And the next play is so funny. You're like, you have to control your bladder. I mean, it's incredible and it's fast. The plays aren't fast. It's not like, they're all sort of sovereign in their way. But we try to get it done in 60 minutes. And if we get it done, you know, there's this big, you know, Hallelujah! And if we sell out the show, we order a pizza for the audience. That's like a neo futurist <laughs> tradition. <laughs> and it was awesome. neo futurism was born in Chicago, and now it's spread. But I'm a neo. You know, I'm a neo alum, and it's one of my proudest accomplishments. And it it did more for my writing than. I hope the writing in the Fae does as much because right, that's, it was intense. I mean, it's so they, good.
0: those constraints to be able oh, to, to tell a story like beginning, middle and end mm. in two minutes. And then if you have to do like 15 of those yeah. in, within a one week period.
1: And memorize it. Everything. Right. You know, we don't use scripts. Kind of mind so. blowing. Was, I mean, God, boot camp for yeah. writer performers. And it's, it's amazing
0: the average person stays there for like five years, but yeah. do a whole lot of people not last? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. It's a
0: fierce, it's sort of like yeah. SNL, you know, like, it's yeah. trial by fire, just like super fast, it's totally. all new every week. That's totally. amazing.
1: But it's exhilarating. I yeah, mean, I it's bet. it's unreal. And you pitch plays every week. You have to pitch your plays. Say you rolled an eight, you come in on Tuesday night, you pitch the plays that you So there's like the
0: Lauren Green who gets to choose what's up on the wall. We,
1: it's consensus, <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah, only the Lauren Michaels or Lauren Michaels. Michaels. yeah. yeah. <laughs> the ghost producer of SNL, Lauren Green. But the ensemble has consensus. So if- So you
0: have to t- commit have to. To everybody.
1: Indeed, ah. indeed. So it's completely, yeah, it's, it's by consensus. Which and it's is always hard.
0: scripted. It can never be a-
1: there is spontaneity, but it's not improv. That's that's the thing that's really important. I'm glad I, I remember to say it. It's not improv. Second City, Chicago, great improv history and culture. But this is not. This is performance. It's scripted. And there's yeah times for spontaneity. And, and we don't know what will happen. Because if we grab an audience member from the audience to be in the play with us or do fulfill some role in the play, which happens all the time, we don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. So we have to work with them. But yeah.
0: That's amazing. I'm going to have to go see that. In you got to
1: it. <laughs> and I did the show here for a while. It's awesome. That sounds so cool. Yeah. So that's a really interesting trial by fire
0: for you. And I got to imagine that didn't Like you said, so much for your writing to, yeah. to work like that. And also just because writing is, as much as we don't like to admit it or any art form, is there's a volume element to it. And when you're forced to, to just keep Damn. creating, 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 I mean, that's a part of what makes you better. Yeah. So you go from there to now. Two full years, luxuriously focusing on this thing. What's your hope? What's your greatest hope slash expectation about what you'll emerge from over this two-year intensive dive into writing?
1: I hope that I don't find that there's no there there. That I'm just Joseph Epstein's a writer I really like, and and people. He was saying, everybody wants to write a book. You know, I want to write a book because it'll, it'll make me immortal. He's like, nothing will make you feel more mortal than writing a book (laughs) and seeing it on the shelf and, you know, and go and seeing it in the half price bookstore, you know, at some point. I mean, he's like, it's really, you know, don't write a book. Just don't, don't worry about it. And so, but of course I have a book. (laughs) I have a book I want to write. And it actually ties both of these things so perfectly. I hope what I want is to become a better person and a better reader and, someone who writes better. I mean, good writing. I mean, Mark Twain, it's like, if you want like a total like detox from every dumb thought you have, every silly thing you see or deal with, or hear, you know, if you just need to sit and cleanse the brain, like read a great writer like Mark Twain. He's just, it's like, he zeroes you out. He just like, it's a, it's like going to the spa or something mm-hmm. for your head. So, and I'd like to come out with this book and it's its called Piecing and it's the perfect marriage of this quilting and writing because I, I have this blog and I pitched it to some agents, you know, I think this could be a book, you know, and they're like, no one's buying memoir. I queried nine agents. Three of them got back to me. The other people didn't. One of them, they were here in New York and one of them said, sorry, no interest. Good luck. And two of them said, it's great. We really like your platform. This quilting thing is fantastic. We can't sell your memoir straight up, but can you weave the quilting thing in? And I was like, yes, yes, I can. And so I am. And it's amazing, Jonathan. I mean, it's like, it's perfect. And I never, I didn't even think of it, but weaving in the life that I have and the things that I see through this life of stitching and fabric and my family and my mother, my first memory was sitting on her lap, like listening to her heartbeat while she's hand quilted in a hoop, mm. swear to God, first memory. And what does it mean to have a first memory? This is the idea I'm exploring in that chapter. I mean, w- everybody has one. Everybody has like the first memory of their life. Like, what's your first memory? I think it says a lot about us. I think it says a lot about a person to say, you know, my first memory is, mm-hmm, I don't know. It's like a key. So that's the kind of thing I'm sort of looking into. So I'll work on that book in school.
0: Mm, I love that. And now you've got me thinking about what my first yeah. memory was. And I have no idea. But I, now I'm going to have to really right, <laughs>
1: right, totally try and figure this it.
0: out. Yeah, it's it, it's so interesting to me because I know a number of people that have done MFAs, especially in writing. Oh, and yeah. there are very different reasons that people do it. Many people actually want to use it as, OK, this is a place where I can take two years and yeah. just write and have expert guidance and how to mm. have editing and input and yeah. reads and stuff like that. And I, it's funny because I've thought about, like, would I ever do something like that? Cause I'm completely untrained. I mean, the only training mm. I have is as a lawyer. And the, the day that I could split my infinitives and stop writing like a lawyer was one of the happiest <laughs> days mm. of my life. Totally. Oh my so, God. do you write in a journal? You a I don't. Journaler? You know, I keep saying, I've got to start journaling. I got to start journaling. And my whole, I, almost every friend that I have does, mm-hmm. uh, especially writer friends. And I never have. Yeah. And I'm always wondering, is there something wrong with me? Because
1: <laughs> oh, no. I
0: don't do it, but I just, I process in so many different yeah, ways exactly. that, that, um, I think if I felt like it was really something I should be doing, I. Probably would have been doing it exactly. years ago. Exactly, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I like journals, though. I think they look cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. Just You might decide right. on the train one day your cool journal needs to be filled. Absolutely. But you were saying the you thought about it or... or... No,
0: I, th- I thought about it, but I never felt a call. And part of it is also because in my mind, somehow I, I link fiction... With MFA in writing. Uh-huh. Instead of, and I write at least until now, it's all nonfiction. And then, uh, but I f- recently realized that I probably have fiction in me. So Whoa. who knows what the future may hold. That's huge. I wanna talk about sitting next to you on the table as we chat is a book. And in that book is a piece that you wrote that you originally will tell the story.
1: Well, thanks for asking. There's another show in Chicago that you must know about. And I don't know if they've got one in New York yet or not Write Club. Write Club. Write Club is the brainchild of my friend Ian. He worked for the neo-futurists for a long time and sort of is in that sort of family of people. Write Club is two writers competing each other with opposing ideas. So two writers will be approached in Chicago community, okay, Chicago writing community. Ian, for example, will approach two writers and say, okay, you're the bout next week, or yeah, you're going to be the bout next week. It takes place at the hideout, like the coolest bar in Chicago. And he'll say, You've got love and you've got lust. And the two writers will go, All right. And so they go and they have a week to write, and you get seven minutes. So when the bout comes up the next week, you have seven minutes to read your piece or to do the piece that you wrote, defending love or defending lust depending on what you got Mm. and so you can write anything you can write a poem you can write a short story you can write an essay which is what i did you can you do anything you want as long as it's written and you're reading it and the audience judges the winner it's a little like poetry slam which i have a lot of background in that as well it's like that and you cannot go over seven minutes and you have to you have just kick butt and then if you win you get to choose a charity that you want to give you know the hat the amount that Mm -hmm. was in the hat to or, or something like that and so it's really hard I mean, it is really hard because you're going up against people who they're great. I mean, they're really good. And some of these people are performers and some of them aren't, but it's the work, you know, rain versus shine, love versus lust, Santa versus Jesus. (laughs) And the first time I did Write club, I lost the second time I won. And my essay was included in this anthology and the bout was native versus foreign. And sometimes you're like, yeah, you know, I had shine rain versus rain won. you know, all these writers sitting around melancholy writers, you know, they voted for rain rain that, that time. And I don't think my piece was as strong, obviously, as the other person, but I got foreign, which is, I think, easier to write a piece defending foreign over native, mm. you know, but it's this wonderful, it's so great and so fun. And so, yeah, I brought that, I brought that essay.
0: So this was originally delivered spoken word piece. Mm-hmm. So um, you have
1: to perform it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You want to, uh,
1: I'd love to, can, do
0: we need to adjust the mic or anything? Or? I,
1: I think it's okay. Yes, Let's like. see. Maybe I should do this. Thank you for.
0: Hold on one second.
1: Okay. There's oh, yeah. The...
0: Noise in the background there.
1: Thanks for letting me read it. If oh, you use it or pleasure. not. Or I yeah. know you do the riffs and things. I don't know. Maybe it's. No, I love this. Okay. Sweet. Cool. You can't choose your birthplace, your native land, but you can choose the fuck out of where you want to go. You're from Modesto. You live in Rome. You're from a family that traffics in burnt ham and thinly veiled hate. You practice patience and serve fennel most delicious. You didn't learn that at home, did you? No, you did not. A foreign agent was introduced at some point, a stranger, a new strand. A foreign idea went viral in your native, previously static brain. Often this th- sort of thing comes from a book, and we all know a book opens like a door. Foreign comes from the Latin for us, which means door. What can possibly be accomplished if you don't open the door? A closed room? What air comes in, what breath, none can come. Perhaps more depressing, none can leave. You stay in one place, you start collecting dust and precious moments, figurines. Just ask my estranged, senile grandmother presently mellowing in her Texas nursing home. I'm glad she's in her native city of Houston. That's surely a comfort to her, being there among the familiar faded church bulletins fit pinned to familiar beige walls. Of course, if she had gone to Dubai... Instead of marrying the first man who gave her a moment's notice back home, she might not be gumming bland, pureed carrots right now. Oh, it might be carrots. She's 90. It's going to be carrots. But it might be curried carrots. And if it were, if she had eaten more curry over the course of her life, it might have aided her digestion, which curry is believed to do. And this would have ultimately benefited her DNA, which would have been passed on to my dad, who likely would have married a different woman than my mother if he had gone to Cordoba, unless instead of also staying in Houston. And sure, I'd be a different Mary, maybe with more almond shaped eyes tooling around muddy side roads in a beat up gremlin looking for work, but I'd I'd probably be singing to a quality, new ish American pop song, and I would likely not have spent four days in the hospital last week, as I did, due to complications from a disease I think I got from my grandmother. Undoubtedly, I'd have a different set of problems. We are all unhappy in our own ways. But to be rid of the pathogen that developed naturally, hereditarily, natively, if you will, in my abdomen, well, I'd roll those dice in a banana leaf minute. No, you can't choose who your natives are or where you're from but you choose the foreign places you go. And if you are a serious person, aware that you are here for one shot and one shot only with no do-over, no eternal party to look forward to if you're nice, if you are soaked in the reality of this lovely and shatteringly painful moment that you've chanced upon, if you are alive, good people, you want to go, not just go on. You want to go to Perth or Venus or dinner at the new place and you want to go now and go away and go farther and go big and keep going, keep going. I know it's fucking. hard. It's so hard. And then what do we do when we can't take it anymore? We get out. We throw him or her or it out. We welcome the door, the for us hitting us in the ass. We wait for it, the door hitting us. It's pragmatic. It gives us the extra push. We escape to a foreign place, click through to a plane ticket purchase. We pack a change of panties, a phrase book or nothing or a noose or a set of shiny new razor blades and we leave. Oh yes, we have all kinds of ways to go. Because what is foreign? While it is uncertain, indeed, and risky, of course and frightening yes what is foreign is better than what we know we do know that The foreign is better than the leftovers in the fridge that never get any fresher. Better than the preset radio station that insists on being the same gesture away from the steering wheel day in and day out. It's better than the same old cereal flakes, the same worn satchel, the same old you regardless of profile Pick. What's unknown is certain to be better than the objects in our native habitat. The chair, the chair, the fucking chair. Familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt! I hate you! I hate you! You chair! You lout! You bore! You constant cracked milk pitcher with the flower motif on the side you moth-eaten closet of dead-eyed dresses staring at me again you standard typical native beasts i'm gone i'm gone i'm leaving and i'm not coming back with the same eyes it would be impossible once i step out and meet the foreign skies and the rearranged figurines on the street i cannot come back the same which is to say that i will never come back which is the goal a new version of ourselves. It's what we want, what we eternally want. It's what we want when we buy. It's what we want when we drink. When we answer the ad for used furniture or new love, however used up that may reveal itself to be. Our desire to be foreign to our very selves is in every haircut, every diet change, every catalog course we select, every new job we take, every current endeavor for business or pleasure, every date, every every first kiss at any bar in Chicago tonight, any night, every night of the same old seven-day week. We want what we don't have. It's the drive of our species. From the sea average sorority pledge to the lettered scientist, make no mistake, the latter is in the lab as we speak, introducing a foreign agent into the dish. Tomorrow is a brand new day, they exclaimed cheerily. Why such confidence? Because tomorrow is foreign you just don't know. What hurt on Monday? Well, it might not be so bad. On Tuesday, you don't know. So get up, sunshine. Carpe tomorrow, motherfucker. Tomorrow is different, foreign to us and fresh. Forget the congenital native today and its attendant malaise. Who needs it? Nobody. Nobody needs it. I am proud to meet every dawn a foreigner. It's tomorrow that we live for, the foreign nature of it, the strange that gets us out of our creaking, musty, painfully native bets. Woo. <laughs> Thanks. I really did get out of the hospital that week. I think that's why I like the fire. And yeah. I was like, ah!
0: that was tremendous. Thank Thanks. you so much for sharing that. Thank
1: you for letting me share it. That was um, really thank powerful. You so
0: much. I can see like your, me just watching the energy yeah. when you just read that speaks volumes to the decision that you're making about the path you're about to follow that really powerful. Thanks. So, to come full circle, this is a good life project. So if I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what comes up?
1: Authenticity. Sometimes I have guilt that I'm so lucky in this life to sit around wondering whether or not I'm my authentic self, you know? How lovely that is, but what else can I do? This is what I've been given, this is what I lucked into, this life, this body, this time. And so it is my duty, I think, to take what I can do and take it as far as I can. That's the good life, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And for those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project.